Our second reading comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. Before we read it, I might add that, or say to you, that reading Ephesians is a lot like crawling through the desert. And all of a sudden, after what seems like forever of crawling through the desert, you're handed a nice, cold, refreshing glass of water. That's what reading Ephesians is like. You don't feel lifted by the time you end that letter. You've read the wrong letter. Paul is speaking, and this is what he says. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among, among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses and We were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what God has made us, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Grace, a word we say often and yet can barely understand. A word that surprises us again and again with who you are. A word that is with us, providing your favor no matter what. Help us know this word. Speak to us, O oh God. Amen. So 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther reportedly posted on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, a document outlining a number of his grievances on a number of the practices of the church at the time. He had 
a beef to take up with the church, and he wanted to begin a conversation. That was his intent, anyway, to begin a conversation, to try to help maybe begin a dialogue, a discernment, a reframing of some of the ways that the church operated and some of the things even that the church believed. That was his hope, his intent. What instead happened was it turned into what became one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in the history of the church. It also gave birth to an odd group called the Protestants and even within the Protestant group a more odd group called those of the Reformed tradition. In other words, us. That was what happened. And so we celebrate the 500th anniversary of that event and by doing so we're gonna take each week with a different basic statement of the Protestant church but more importantly I could say the Reformed faith. Just three basic statements of Reformed Protestant faith. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. As the statement goes, we are saved by grace through faith in scripture. Another way to think about it is we're set aside. Set aside. God sets us aside through the gift of God's grace that is revealed to us in Scripture that we receive by faith. That's the line. And the big difference that came out of the Reformation is we do not need the church to tell us who and who does not receive God's grace. We don't need the church to tell us who and who does not have the gift of faith or is offered the gift of faith. We do not need the church to read scripture for us. The church instead in our understanding is a gathering of people who recognize these things as gifts of God. Things that come to us from beyond ourselves and we gather like we do today and in other part in large groups and small to to learn about that, to be challenges by, challenged by those things, to participate in them and explore them together. But other than that, they stand on their own. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Today we start with grace. Don't know if there is a better week to talk about grace with all that's been going on, right? All that's happened, all that's in the news, talk about grace. We'll begin this way. There's an old story about C.S. Lewis who happened upon a group of theologians who were, as theologians love to do, yammering on about, you know, theology. And they were arguing about what makes Christianity unique. What makes Christianity unique? Is it the incarnation, one said? Certainly it's the incarnation. God become flesh in Jesus Christ, one of us, makes us unique. Another one said, well, no, there are other stories and other religions of God showing up in human form. So although it's not quite like the Gospels, 
say it with us. It's, it's not all that unique. Well, and it must be, you know, the, the resurrection. They kind of say it with that resurrection. Kind of, you know, that's how I picture it anyway. And the resurrection, new life from death. Well, no, there's, there's other religions that talk about people coming back from the dead, although that too is not quite like how the Gospels put it, but it is not utterly unique. And about that time, C.S. Lewis walks in and says to him, what in the world is all the racket going on in here? All this commotion, I'm trying to sleep. And they say, we're trying to figure out what makes Christianity unique. He smiles at them like they've missed it all completely. He said, that's easy. It's grace. He walks out. Grace. The mere notion of a God of grace is utterly and completely unique. God who shows us unmerited, unearned favor. A good way to think about grace, perhaps, is to start by describing what we might look like without it. What might we look like were it not for grace? And that's maybe where I'm more of a John Calvin person than in other places. But were it not for grace, we would be nothing. Nothing. Worth nothing. We would be just a pile of gook. Just nothing. With no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Were it not for grace. Paul puts it this way. Paul says we would be dead. We would be dead. Dead. I mean just not only down for the count. We'd be out of the game. Completely. No, no life. No breath. Nothing. Dead. You were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, he says, dead. But, and this, I have to say, this is probably the most significant use of that word in all of Scripture. But, but God, who is rich in mercy and in the great love by which God loves us, made us alive in Jesus Christ. You were dead. God made you alive in Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace. And this is not your deal. This God's deal. It's not your doing. You didn't do this. God did this. It is God's gift in you. John Calvin puts it this way, everything good in the will of a person is by God's grace alone. Every, so everything good in us is the grace of God, everything good. Paul says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Same way of saying it. Everything good in you 
is a sign in the presence of God's grace, God's gift. So without it, you'd be gook. Professor of theology Shirley Guthrie once described grace this way. He started off by saying, he came at it as in an existential way. He came at it and said, you, you can't justify yourself. You can't. You just can't do it. You cannot justify yourself. So just stop doing that. Stop trying to do it. It's not going to work. You can try all you want. Ain't going to work. You might convince some people that you are in some way deserving of something. But at the end of the day, ultimately, it's not going to work. You cannot justify yourself. Stop trying to convince yourself, people, God, that you are in some way deserving of anything. It just ain't the truth. Because there is only one person who can make things right within you, and that's God. God is the only one who can make things right within you. God is the only one who can make things right in your relationships. Guess what? God's already done that. It's called grace. Guthrie goes on to say, he says, God is the one who makes the first move. Big reformation kind of thing. God is primary actor always. God is always made, has and always will be the primary actor, makes the first move. That is a vast departure from almost every other religion that has ever existed. Almost everyone out there talks about us making the first move as if God is in the background just kind of hanging out, waiting to see what we're going to do. We say, as Guthrie puts it, God makes the first move in that we are not God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. We don't make peace with God. God makes peace with us. That's what the death of Jesus is all about. Comes to us unearned. It's a gift. Grace. A word that reminds us that we can't earn God's favor. We can't buy it. We can't win it in a lottery. It does not discriminate. It does not select. It is God's free gift. It is the good that is in you. The grace in Jesus Christ our Lord that we've been given so we can't earn it what you can do is receive it what you can do is believe it so do me a favor stop trying to make your life perfect Stop. It's never going to work. You might convince some, but it's never going to work. 
So stop it. If you leave here hearing nothing else today, may you hear that no matter how messy your life can get, no matter how awful things might be, that will never change God's deep desire for the good that God has willed in you. That is God's grace, and it's what makes you beautiful. Believe it. I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Charles. Charles lived in Memphis. Some called him during the 80s and 90s the voice of Memphis. He was on the radio at that time. He had an amazing singing voice, just that deep, you know. Had the ability to catapult any audience to an imaginary better world. Just, he sang in churches, community concerts, weddings, sang at my wedding. He was also one of those people that when he walked into the room, he didn't even have to say a word, and no matter if it was five people or 5,000, they all knew something special had just arrived, you know, those kind of people. Just walked into a room, just the air would change. Just had that kind of, Charles was larger than life, which was also his struggle. The very thing that made him come across as so amazing to so many others was the very thing he struggled with. He struggled with life. He battled addiction and depression. He was human. When I learned that he died a couple of weeks ago, I flew to Memphis to be part of the leading of the service because he once told me that that's what he wanted, you know, because he was, never knew when he'd go. He was sick, not sick. And I show up, and there were 10 clergy leading this thing. 10 Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians. We were trying to come up with a word for that, you know, Episcopalian or something like that. And we all started to joke because we all knew Charles, great sense of humor, and we said, yeah, well, that's about right. It would take about 10 with someone like Charles to make it. I mean, it just, we started talking, and we also started talking about how much he meant to so many people in ways beyond what he could ever understand. Charles never met a stranger, ever. And I got a glimpse into some of his thinking on that, I guess. I, I got a hold of his personal Bible that he had given to a close friend. I'd never seen it. I mean, I'd never, and I opened it. And I'm here to tell you, I've never seen more notations, underlines, highlights, circling, asterisks, notes, questions, comments, in, in a Bible in my entire life, I struggled to find a page, one page that did not have at least three or four 
notations. You think about that. Every page, highlight after highlight and comment and thought and, and this and that and what's this and what's that. It's as if he was seeking to earn God's favor perhaps by, by doing this. If there was ever an example of that being possible, it was here in this book that I opened up. Line after line after line after line after effort after effort after effort. And then I noticed it inside the front cover, you know, in that blank little part. He had written this. Everyone you meet is fighting some form of affliction, be kind. Now does that not just sum up the lot of us? Every single one of us, everyone you meet is fighting some form of affliction. Whether it be large or small, whether it be something directly related, related to them personally or them trying to help a friend that's battling something or some family member or someone they know, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us is fighting some form of affliction. Be kind. That's grace. Ten clergy and everybody and all of Memphis gathered together to say goodbye to my friend. And as much as we wanted to make the case for it, we were not there because he deserved it or because he had earned it. In and of himself, he, like us, is nothing. But we were there to recognize and celebrate something he lived his life by. He believed right down to his toes in the grace of God, we've been given in Jesus Christ. He didn't live his life because he was trying to earn God's favor. He lived his life because he knew and believed he already had it. He relied on it, hoped in it, patterned his life after it. You want to know what grace looks like? Look at people like my friend Charles who've never met a stranger. Grace looks like the feet of all those people who've waded through the sludge of home after home after home, cleaning up the floods of hurricanes and homes devastated, not so much because the people needed help, although they did, but because that is simply who they are, God's grace in them. Grace looks like the people who kept going back into the crowd in Las Vegas again and again and again to do whatever they could, find whatever need they could find, making their cars into ambulances and, and their clothes into bandages because they know of no other, no other way. It's, it's who they are. You know what grace looks like? Grace looks like Jesus Christ crawling up onto the cross, not because we need help, 
although we do, but because that is simply who God is. Grace alone. Believe it. 